Have you heard the expression that necessity is the mother of invention? It's a well-known proverb. It implies that the primary driving force for most new design is a need. I challenge that. I think the mother of invention is not just the people who identify the need, but it's the dreamers who do. The people that make things happen. And we can be so thankful for their efforts. It's because innovators carry us from one era to the next. Their ability to imagine new solutions to old problems, well, that drove us from horse and buggy to the electric Teslas within a century. And you know what? Innovation is, is uniquely human. Take a duck from the medieval era and place them in a 2022 pond. They'll carry on eating their bugs and paddling around. And we know our future's unknown. Nobody can predict what the 21st century has in front of us, just as no one could have predicted the 20th century from the Victorian homes of the 1800s. And when you compound it with today's pace of change and this constant bombardment of problems facing our lives and planet, it can feel like we're sitting on the edge of a dangerous precipice. But I don't believe we are. I feel that innovators accessing ever-increasing technology will solve hunger and healthcare and climate change, cybersecurity, affordable housing, and so much more. And their most significant barrier isn't their ability to think and do and invent. It's our ability to accept new ways of doing things. Our willingness to shred bureaucracy in the status quo, to boldly go where no one has gone before. What is Boxable? Boxable is a factory-built construction technology that will save you about half on what it would normally cost you to build anything. So let's look at one of these problems, the affordable housing crisis. In many ways, it's a microdism of a significant class problem. Now, you could point your fingers at all sorts of things, a growing number of unhoused, and point to unemployment, the demand for housing outstripping supply, the cost of land, inflation, a mistrust between the public sector and developers. You could point to a lack of capital, bureaucracy, red tape, maybe just the mental health and drug crisis. You would be right on several, if not all accounts. But finger pointing at the status quo isn't a solution. It's a distraction, it's a deflection, or simply your ability to vent your dissatisfaction. If you want to solve the problem, you need to innovate to find a better mousetrap. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So once you have this, what can you build? Well, you can build pretty much anything. If you remember perhaps uh, these guys from your childhood, the Lego bricks, uh, anything you can imagine to build with, with these you can build with a boxable product. My guest today is Paolo Tiramani. He looked at affordable housing, something that's been on the politician's radar for years, and he approached the problem by thinking outside of the box to create Boxable. Boxable is a mass-produced housing built in assembly line. It's packed down to the size of a shipping container and then delivered on site. A $50,000 home can be unpacked within an hour into a customizable 375 square foot living space. They come with a fridge, washer, dryer, and shower. All you need to do is add a couch, a bed, and something to celebrate your new nest. This isn't a prototype. This is a working factory. Elon Musk is one of his investors. And today, we will learn about what it takes to turn a dream into a reality and what he has to say about making your dreams a reality. Paolo Tiramani, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, thank you so much. What a fantastic open, and I love the show. I didn't realize I would be sitting down and chatting with 
uh, a like mind, and I especially like the Star Trek reference. Well, you are boldly going, man, and I'm not. We're going to talk about boxable and so many other things that you're touching with your genius. But you've described yourself as an industrial designer and entrepreneur. And I question, are they the same? Are these two tasks of inventing and then monetizing the invention usually done by the same person or more often than not, it, it takes two to tango? Yeah, I think maybe more than two to tango. You know, the definition of an industrial designer is it's basically industrial design. It's commercial art. So it's not art for art's sake. It's art with a purpose. And the, uh, the purpose has a customer and an end result and, uh, you know, manufacturing and pricing and all of those things. So it's art at sort of a high RPM where everything has to work. It can't be just subjective. Everything has to work. That's a skill in in and to itself where you have to combine those two skills of mechanical engineering and design. Hopefully the the combination of those uh, results in innovation. And the third leg of the stool for any successful business that's looking to put out a unique product obviously has to be the business side of things. It's taken a long time, I suppose, to become an overnight success. Uh, but this this one uh, definitely seems to be uh, clicking. So I'm going to get to Boxable in a minute. And I wish my audience could see what I'm looking at because behind you is this massive factory with so much energy. But before we get to Boxable, under your Corporation 500 group, you hold 45 U.S. and 15 European patents. And it's a wide range of inventions, intellectual property. You've done housewares, hardware, juvenile, medical, personal care, construction, and automotive. And you've generated over a billion dollars in revenue from what started as a need and you decided to turn into an opportunity. I don't want to get into all the patents, but just give us an example of one of your hits. And I'd love to talk about this rolling workshop system. License this to Black & Decker. I would think Black and Decker should have invented it. Why does it take an innovator to come in and identify not only a better mousetrap, but in this case, a brand new one? So innovation is in my in my blood. I suppose a bit of a rebel, lack of attention span. You could sort of blame it on a lot of different things. And I think curiosity about the world, uh, anything mechanical, biological, doesn't matter. It's all of interest. The previous company had, uh, I think, over 150 actually patent filings altogether. Uh, the company Boxable, which we'll get to, I think, has over 60. So IP or intellectual property patents innovation definitely in my blood. And uh, just to pick one of so many, the the rolling workshop with Stanley Black and Decker was a huge hit for us. I think that was probably over a billion dollars by itself. We also did something a little bit similar with with luggage. Your luggage, uh, before we really got involved, didn't really have wheels. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And if you look at old movies from the 50s and 60s, these guys were carting these uh, boxes around of uh, luggage. And uh, we were early. We weren't the first to put wheels on. And this analogous certainly to the rolling workshops. And we came with first principles, modular system, uh, commonality of moles, fewest number of unique parts, uh, rationalization of assembly, and uh, put handles and a wheel on it. And uh, the rolling workshop uh, was very instrumental, a core piece of our early success a long time ago, allowed us to build on that. Most inventions, uh, there's a, what I call the, the, the hook of the song. You know, any song that you can think of has a has a hook to it. And most inventions or new technologies have a hook. And with that, it was the wheels, but really it was the sum of the parts and a lot of other rationalization and smaller inventions that surround that. That was certainly a very big one for us. Uh, and pretty much, you know, if you have a wheel, 
if you have a toolbox with wheels on it, likelihood is it was ours or was one of ours at the same time. And the principles of invention, rather like the principles of good business or accounting, those first principles are pretty much common. And if you stick with them and you have discipline and you can use those uh, those first principles as a tow rope you know, to bring you through from one end to the other, to, to take uh, an oftentimes complicated problem and make it very, very simple. And this sort of left brain, right brain approach, you just strike me as somebody that synthesizes a lot of complexity and just continues to drive, much like Steve Jobs did with the iPod, said, I don't want all the stuff Walkman's got on it. I just simply want, and he drew a, a blackboard. The legend is, he took on a blackboard and he drew a rectangle in a circle. He said, my five-year-old knows what those shapes are. Make me this. Where did yours come from? Like, talk to me about your growing up and, you know, you talked about being restless and curious. You must have been quite a handful as a child. I don't know, actually. I think I was, I, I think I was a, an undersized, uh, very polite small child. I had a lot of uh, sort of illness with asthma and stuff, spent a lot of years in bed. And so I'm Italian family, grew up in London. And my, my mother, I remember for several years, would, would go to the market every day and, and bring some little bag of toy, you know, like a, what would have been a 50 cent toy, uh, along with Legos of all things. And I think that just sparked curiosity. I spent a lot of time with myself. So maybe that sort of breeds an imagination. I don't know. And then uh, growing up, you know, really uh, formally schooled at Central School in Industrial Design in London. And there was really a very formal education with all the greats and uh, really get drilled into you uh, the benefits of the rationalization and simplicity and from simplicity typically uh, with symmetry comes uh, beauty and the fact that uh, with industrial design, uh, things can be beautiful and function function optimally, all in service of whoever's paying the customer. I remember my first experience running an agency. I got to work on Braun and Dieter Brock was about form follows function and the most beautiful household appliances that he was creating. And they work superbly. And I was always wondering why there was such an opportunity in the marketplace, why status quo allowed someone like him to come in and say, it doesn't just have to be a blender. It can be a blender that works better and looks better. And I was always curious at why someone like him would see that opportunity when people that were sitting on a balance sheet that had research and development dollars that had distribution all over the world were blinded to that. And what's your sense of why it's sometimes it's that little person that put the dent in the universe versus the big business? As businesses grow, uh, they build on to themselves legacy items how it's done, how it's manufactured, what the supply chains are. And I think coming from outside of an industry, oftentimes, as I believe Steve Jobs did, and inventions built out of whole cloth that didn't exist before, from even a TikTok to a Google to an Amazon to a Tesla, uh, it's always it always seems to be folks coming from the outside of the industry that are not weighed down with the baggage of legacy. Our generations change very, very quickly. Technology is accelerating. Turns are happening faster and faster. And uh, just keeping with the simplicity and not having those legacy items would be, would be sort of the, the main event. A, not necessarily a firm idea of the end result, but sticking with principles that will guide you to the best uh, end 
results. Have you seen Gally? Did you see Gally? Have you seen Gally? 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 Anyone know where Gally is? Hey, what's going on? Nothing. Are you, uh, are you, are you sleeping here? Sometimes. How is it? It's quite peaceful, actually. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it. All right, if you guys are ready, we're gonna take you over and go see the new factory. But first, cue the music. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Paolo Tiramani. He's a serial entrepreneur, industrial designer, visionary, and the CEO and co-founder of a company called Boxable. History could very easily put you in the top tier of great inventors. And we're going to explain that in a minute when we talk about Boxable. But how do you deal with when the status quo wants to push you back. I mean, they, you know, automotive tried to bury the electric car. Tucker came along with a better mousetrap and they refused to allow them in. Obviously, Elon Musk with Tesla had a, a tough gauntlet to run at the beginning. Steve Jobs. How do you persevere as an innovator and inventor knowing that your North Star is providing something of a tremendous value to your customer but also knowing that at times you're going to have to run through cement, pour it on your feet by people that don't want to surrender market share to the upstart. I live, we're here in Las Vegas and I live on the Strip. Out of my window, I can see the Luxor Hotel, which is an older hotel. And there's a Sphinx outside. <laughs> there's a Sphinx outside and a pyramid. And uh, when folks, uh, we, we use that as a saying around here, you know, when folks tell you you can't do something, you can typically point to uh, a sphinx and say, yes, I can, uh, because they're doing that. But uh, typically the answer, uh, shorter answer, when somebody tells you you can't do something, uh, first of all is to analyze whether they're correct or not uh, and see what merit uh, there is in their argument. But the shorter answer is... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about Boxable because I, when I saw this video, I thought it was one of those uh, cheddar things that, you know, somebody kind of creating this prototype of what could happen. And then I immediately went to, you know, I was in disbelief when a mattress arrived in my house in a box. <laughs> you're not boxing a mattress. You're taking it to an unimaginable place. You're shipping an entire house that way. So explain to my listeners what Boxable is all about. Just how would you describe it if you're in an elevator trying to convince someone like Elon Musk to invest in, in what you're doing? The genesis of Boxable was my business partner and I, happens to be my son as well. He is a serial entrepreneur, a really very, very successful guy on the business side. And I would say, if I had to characterize it, I would say well, I'm the guy with sort of the box of crowns. So we wanted to find a problem. We didn't start with the idea. So he said, let's, let's find a problem. Let's find a really big problem, see if we can help. If we're going to devote our energies to it, it's the same effort to do a, you know, to do a big project as it is to do a small project. In some ways, it's easier. Housing crisis, housing affordability was uh, clearly uh, a problem. And as we dug, it was sort of the gift that kept on giving on the problem front. The biggest one is that it's a pre-industrial business. And by pre-industrial, I mean not built in a factory. I mean, this was just gold, solid gold for us and the way we think, because we thought, well, if we, what's the problem? And if we can fix the problem, put building construction in a factory, well, wow, 
now we can take advantage of modern modern materials, processes, tools, equipment, software, everything, everything under the auspices of a factory that's been used to make everything in your life, we can avail ourselves for the building construction industry. So we said, okay, well, what's the problem? We realized that buildings are big and you can't ship them and the factory solutions were bringing old technology under a roof, hammering things together with air guns and nails, and then making something 14 foot wide, making something with an old technology, making it illegally wide, and then attempting to ship it, and then surprised that they only have a 200 mile range. Well, we recognized through analysis from our team, about two thirds of a home is empty space, and then the remaining third is what we call dollar dense, dollar dense in both labor, human labor, and also materials and equipment, bathrooms, cabinets, closets, uh, you know, showers, kitchens, boiler rooms, and all of that. Uh, and then a study of the global highway regulations, say, eight and a half foot wide, 13 and a half foot from the tarmac, you can't be more than 53 feet. So we took all of this data, looked at it and said, well, hang on a second. You know, if we pack down the volume and we leave the dollar dense stuff built out in a factory, we can ship three times the volume on one truck. We can ship it within standard shipping infrastructure globally. And then once we're in a factory, we can avail ourselves of well-trodden processes uh, and methods of doing business. So that resulted in the Unpack video, where it sort of unfolds as a box that's caught the public's imagination. Built in our factory and shipped quickly to your site, Boxables connect and stack to build almost any residential and light commercial building style you can imagine. Complete with large, clear span spaces and tall 9.6 ceiling heights. And so that was uh, really the main genesis for us proceeding to the next step in our R&D lab to see how far we could take that concept. And we realized that we could get nine and a half foot ceilings, which is very, very tall, and uh, 40 foot uh, clear span, 20 foot wide walls that don't need headers, just with modern materials and processes to cut windows and doors wherever we want. And we looked at that and said, well, wow, it's not a house but it's a building module like a Lego. What can't you build with a 40-foot clear span and a nine and a half foot ceiling that's 20 foot wide and, and combine and stack and cantilever those together? And does this fix the problem? And the answer tentatively was, yeah, maybe. And can we build most things most of the time? The answer is a resounding, yeah, definitely. And so if we keep it architecturally neutral, do the heavy lifting, produce this building system that can build most things most of the time, we've got our foot in the door to something possibly rather big. And so that was the, the genesis of the idea. And then what we call here internally the problem pie, we just set about in a very journeyman way with our skill sets here. We've got all sorts of folks here. We've got aerospace engineers, automotive engineers, all sorts of super smart people. We sliced up the pie, any pie you like, apple pie, I like pizza. Each problem has to, large and small, has to be given the same amount of, in, of attention. And what we find is one of our first principles is if we approach R&D and design and development and our, our task as 
design as an engineer is to fix the whole problem, not just make something that's pretty or is cheap to make. And when you pay attention to every slice with, with equal vigor, the slices kind of have a knock-on effect with each other. We fixed the shipping problem, which was, you know, the bear in the woodshed. Doing that, we picked up several other massive additions of great value to us and therefore to the consumer. The first thing is, by packing it down like this, we ship on one truck instead of three for a commensurate volume. That's pretty green. That saves a lot of money, all sorts of green. Green for the earth and green money. When we dropped these things off, we developed our own trailer system because, you know, low boys cost $100,000 and big rigs cost a quarter of a million dollars. We're able to pull our product with a $50,000 brand new pickup truck and our own low boy that has probably $8,000 worth of steel in it. And we're able to backhaul commodities like automobiles and containers. Once the product is delivered, instead of having a crane and waiting around for half a day or a day or an overnight somewhere, the driver can just pull up. He doesn't need level ground. He doesn't need an assistant. He doesn't need a crane. In 20 minutes, he's back in his truck, gone. The product is dropped off. When the product is moved around the job site, it doesn't need a crane. It can be done with a telehandler, just a big forklift. And for unpacking, we're now developing, instead of having a crane or even a telehandler, uh, we're developing a mechanism uh, with an automotive battery. It sounds very Rube Goldberg that, uh, you know, two guys and this mechanism that I think costs about 600 bucks in parts allows the product to be unpacked in the field. So when you look at the whole problem pie, you look at shipping and cranes and unpacking and costs, it's just a gift that keeps on giving. So all of these things knock, knock onto each other. Uh, we call it sort of pu pushing the problem around. And oftentimes you fix one problem, you cause a problem somewhere else. But if you're cognizant of the whole pie and you, you treat it respectfully from supply chain to customer purchasing and financing and insurance, you find one problem fixed might have an add-on benefit to two or three other issues. So I'm going to use a word that I hate, it's holistic. But it really is a holistic approach to making this product successful and eternal. How do you counter your critics who look at this and say it's just not scalable? What we found to date with critics, first thing to do with critics is we absolutely listen. We're not perfect. We don't presume we're right. Uh, and if the critic has a good point or a better way, design 101. You know, if you're sitting around a table... And perhaps not a critic, but some, and you throw out an idea and somebody challenges that idea and then comes up with a better idea. We are all trained here like ninjas to jump over the table and join the guy on the other, on the other side of the table and agree with his idea. The, the easiest thing you can do once you take your ego out of it is to agree with somebody else's better idea because there's no argument. And then you have a better result for both parties and you go ahead. Oftentimes, critics fall into a couple of camps, uh, the genuine and the not so genuine. So the genuine ones that have a better idea, we absolutely listen. Maybe they got a better idea or they're alerting us to a problem, alerting us to a problem that we hadn't considered. And for those others, we just counter it with facts. Uh, for scaling, uh, we absolutely have a plan for scale. It's a fairly simple 
plan for scale, and I'd be happy to run you through it. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand is you're going to expand that footprint that you're in right now. That's what I sort of read as I was doing a little bit of digging on on your ability to counter credit. So if you look at the product, it has to do two things. It has to thread a needle. On the one hand, factories want to make repeatability. They need to repeat what they make like a nut and a bolt for ultimate efficiency. On the other hand, the customer wants customization and they are paying. They are the ultimate authority. What we realize is that the customer doesn't want ultimate customization. They want to meet their price point, countertops, finishes, and things of that nature. The boxable building system are building shells. The one that's publicly out there is the casita, the little little adorable studio home, is 20 foot by 20 foot. Uh, we will make two other sizes of building shell, you know, the box, and that will be 20 by 30 and 20 by 40. And those are basically the three Lego blocks that I played with as a kid, that you probably played with as a kid, you know, the square one, the rectangular one, and the one in the middle that nobody uses. So if you can imagine those, and you can imagine playing with those and building anything from a little mansion to a single home to a mid-rise apartment, and then within that system, the boxable building shelves are on a grid. Inside, we have things called chases. Chases are just holes. And uh, it's just a grid of chases, almost like a subway subway uh, train would have uh, subway tunnels. And those can accept electrical, uh, PEX lines, uh, all sorts of things, plumbing if, if necessary. Very, very simple to make. Uh, the number of u- unique components between the 20, 30, and 40-foot units is zero. <laughs> and uh, the fewest number of unique components, you, you know, remove a component, you remove the process, all these good principles. So we wound up in a place where the factory can make staggering amounts of building shells, or will be able to, as we continue to automate in a very short period of time, but the customer can get what we call configurations internally, and the customer calls customization. So having thought about that, you know, we came from a 10,000 R&D center to effectively a 300,000 square foot uh, R&D center behind me. And this will put out somewhere between five and 7,000 homes a year. We look at that factory as the first viable factory. And that factory is the product that makes the product. This is Chatter That Matters. Coming up, Paulo Terramani and I talk about his affection and respect for his co-founder, who he calls one of the smartest people he knows. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live, and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. If anyone's an, an expert at crayons, it's Paolo. The design mind is is awesome. You know, obviously, if, if I'm going to align with anyone's kind of attitude and, and worldview, it's it's my dad. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest today is Paolo Tiramani. He's a serial entrepreneur, industrial designer, visionary, and the CEO and co-founder of a company called Boxable. 
I, I want to ask you a question because on your LinkedIn page, and if I'm getting too private, say so, but you know, you're known as a billionaire inventor. Having a billion dollars, it, it, what gives you the motivation to continue to have this drive? I think part of it, it sounds like is just this relationship with your son, but what gets you out of bed every day? Because, you know, sometimes people have a hit song, a hit record, they've made their money and they can't recreate it anymore. They, they've lost that, that burning desire. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, uh, great question. Makes me be a little bit uh, introspective. Just coming back to when I was young. My mother pretty much just told me two things. I love you and you're the best. That's it. Uh, I sort of drank the Kool-Aid on that and strived to just do the best that I could. I think for me personally, my home upbringing, pretty nice people growing up with that good works aspect. And frankly, you know, how many houses can you live in? How many cars can you drive? My personal lifestyle is quite modest. I don't care, frankly. I just don't care. I have everything I need. I don't need that much. What shall I do? Lots of energy. And sure, sure enough, you know, when, when we moved to Las Vegas from the New York metro area to do this project, you know, a lot of my friends are saying, what are you doing? Why don't you, you know, what are you doing? Why, do you, why are you taking this on? And it's like, well, what else am I going to do when I wake up in the morning? The energy that I get today is remarkable. And I you know, I wake up every morning and I, I share this and business partner, my son, Gally, agrees. We, we wake up in the morning and can't believe what's happening. The scale of the enterprise is amazing. The people we're hiring are amazing. We try and be good employers. It's, it's tremendously motivational. And, and when Gally and I started the company, we said, if we're going to do something, we have to be the best. We have to fix a problem somewhere. Let's do some good. And let's do it quickly. And you can say all those things and it can fall flat on its face. And certainly, I've said some of those things in the past and have fallen flat on my face. And then as we scale, we're having to learn new challenges. Our roles are changing as the business scales. And that is very motivational because you're doing something new. You're doing something new. It's absolutely thrilling to get the opportunity to do this. How does your son deal with the fact that he's in your, and it certainly sounds like you stand equal, so I'm not implying anything else, but when the world has these biases, they're saying, well, you know, he's the lucky one. He's in your shadow. You know, it's funny. I, I actually have sensitivity to that, and he has zero sensitivity to that. And the reality is not w always what it appears to be. Yeah, oftentimes, you know, the sun, com the sun comes in, you sort of question it. It's like, well, he's the sun. And it's not the case at all. I actually learn from him every day. This isn't just a proud dad just spouting off. Uh, he is uh, one of the smartest guys I know. He's a serial entrepreneur, massively successful. Most of us go from A to B and we take a detour and we go to the left and have lunch and then go to the right. He doesn't just go from A to B. He just teleports from A to B. Uh, one of the most rational, fast-thinking people, incredibly intuitive, successful at anything he turns his hands to. And uh, when we talked about this originally, he had a very large-scale marijuana business uh, and, and uh, previous to that, digital currency business. Uh, didn't, didn't like them, very successful in them. You know, we were talking and I said, you know, you're enormously successful with commodity products and you don't have anything special about your products, but with the rest of your business acumen, you can make remarkable things happen. So if you have a remarkable product, if you have an extraordinary product and you have extraordinary skills as you do, what can happen? For your audience, he is driving this. 
we co-lead this company on an extraordinary sound basis of first and foremost of respect. Uh, and I believe that respect has to come from me to him first and foremost as the senior and it's uh, reciprocated, which I'm very, very grateful for. And uh, just really a, a deep love. Uh, I could not commercialize this, these ideas to this level without his talents. And his talents don't stop at the, the edge of the business door. You know, they go deep into uh, R&D and product development as well. So sometimes you just get lucky. As a father of two daughters, it's just wonderful to hear a dad talking this way about being first among equals and making your son the first of those equals. So it's, it's fantastic. I have a question for you. There's a quote that I've always been fascinated about. It says, people tend to overestimate what they can do in a day and underestimate what they can do in a decade. Is that a fair quote for innovators and visionaries, or is that more a quote for the masses? I am absolutely guilty of that. We all are on the former, right? You say, I'm going to do this today, and you wind up doing 20% of it if you're lucky. I think the latter is true with a caveat that you can't give up. That's definitely one of my principles. Anybody that knows me uh, knows that it's a strength and a weakness of staggering levels of stubbornness. So we don't give up. And it's part of the culture here. We don't give up. You know, we put we put our forehead to the wall and we push and push and push. And I think to be surprised at what you can accomplish in a decade, which uh, goes by very, very quickly. As we look at the world going forward, not everybody obviously has your resources, nor do they have your intellectual or emotional capabilities. What's your advice and how my listeners what they can do to make tomorrow's world better. We live in interesting times, but I would just remind everybody that we live in our own time bubble from the time I was born to the time I die and the time I'm in today and the time that you're in today and the time that your listeners in today and this week and last week. And it's very large because it's in your life. So whatever is going on around the country and around the world is probably not that unusual. And if you think of a Second World War and a First World War and the Hundred Years' War in Europe, you can say, well, at least they're getting shorter. <laughs> you know, information and troubles that we see are far more public now through digital media, phones and everything. That causes, I think, a national global anxiety. But it's really a glass half full because deal with the anxiety, at least the people of which I'm a fan, I'm a big freedom guy, get to see what's going on. So I think keep everything in context, realize you are in your own little time bubble of today. The world going back uh, decades, let alone hundreds of years, was a much darker place. Overarchingly, I would say the advance of ideas and technology, uh, I'm not just saying that because it's our business, but uh, is the only thing that improves the human stand human standards of living and the human experience in terms of general comfort and intellect and uh, awareness and intelligence. It's only the advance of technology. Government produces nothing of any value. It doesn't lower the cost of living or provide a better lifestyle for folks generally. It's only it's only technology and those folks working in technology hardworking people. And I don't mean just people coming up with ideas. I mean, guys on the factory floor. If you're thinking about doing something for yourself, it could be an idea or or having babies or whatever it is, or 
switching jobs or moving to another part of the country, another part of the world, uh, and you're always finding a reason not to do it, don't do that. Uh, dispel that from your head. Make a thoughtful, reasoned decision. Be brave and do it because you're not going to be around that long. How do you stay focused on Boxable, but at the same time, make sure you're satisfying your appetite to solving the next big problem? It's like a busman's holiday, I think, where you know you drive a bus for a living and then you take your family on vacation and you're driving a car. It's a busman's holiday. So my busman's holiday is to do little side projects. I'm sort of guilty of that. I'll design, uh, you know, I'm a sort of, I'm a gearhead, I'm a geek, so motorcycles, cars, all that good stuff. I do those uh, small projects in my head, but overarchingly, uh, I always come back to uh, what, what Uncle Harold said, which is do the important things first. Keep that in your mind because it's very easy to get up and do the things that you want to do tomorrow's tony will thank today's tony if you get up and do the important things first for boxable i'll I'll also say is we have a development arc which i I would say probably 80 percent rests between my ears and galliano's ears currently we're focused on the casita right now uh, standing everything up, getting to profitability. It's a very, very big picture. We have broken it down to simplify that picture. We're sharing it with our team. Our team is adding to that picture. And we are merrily grinding our way through that by day, day by day very, very quickly. So I would say in summary, just remember Uncle Harold. So, Paulo Terramani, I always end my episodes with my three takeaways. I hope people listening will either have taken notes because there's so many that you've offered. But I think the first one is, I love what your mom said to you. Two things that were important. I love you and you are the best. And I think that is advice for parents that no matter what child you're dealing with in your life, Having them feel that way and believe that way is amazing. And I give credit for your mom to taking the effort to make sure that this bored kid in bed when she, he was sick had something to play with and imagine. The second thing is just I love your this sense of curiosity. And when you and your son got together, if we're going to do something, let's do something remarkable. Let's do something that has an impact. Let's get out of the commodity business and let's find a real problem to solve. And the third thing is a piece of advice for all of us is be brave and do it. You have a time bubble. It is finite. It isn't something to just put aside. It is something to make things happen versus watch and wonder what happened. You and your son are ones to watch. And I'm looking forward to seeing just how many people are going to wake up in the morning in a shelter that they can afford that's beautifully designed that has nine and a half foot ceilings and windows and they have a an oasis where in the past the concept of owning anything was not something they could imagine so for that and so much more i'm so proud and so happy you joined me in chat of the matters tony thank you so much it's really been my pleasure i've really thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you so joining me now is rbc economist carrie freestone has co-authored a paper on housing in Canada. Carrie, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Carrie, housing seems to be a topic at every dinner table. What should I do with my house? Should I buy? Should I sell? Younger people saying, can I afford a house? And one of the things that impacts all of this is interest rates. Bank of Canada has been moving these rates up quite aggressively. What impact does that have on somebody's ability to buy? 
essentially, they're not going to be able to afford as large of a mortgage as they could have in 2021. Um, so that means that they're looking for a lower priced home than they would have been um, you know, in the middle of the pandemic when prices were lower. So it is a challenge for today's buyers going into the market in this environment where rates are so high. Um, on the other end as well, you know, we're in a situation with rising rates where individuals who already own homes, they have to spend a larger portion of their income on their mortgages. And this means that they're going to have less money for discretionary spending on goods and services. And that's when we see sort of weaker economic activity. And we do see that spilling over into the housing market as well, because, you know, when people have less money, obviously, they're they're purchasing less properties. And do you see that there's a, a silver lining in the cloud that if rates go up, there's a potential that we're going to take some of the froth off this market and, and make housing prices more affordable, that they'll come down? We're already seeing it. So housing market activity is slowing in major markets across Canada. Prices are starting to come down. And a lot of this is just because of the higher rates environment. There are fewer people, especially first-time homebuyers, but there's fewer people looking to, to make this purchase right now. Uh, they're waiting um, you know, for rates to settle a little bit. In your paper that you wrote with uh, Robert Hogue, I, I really like the fact that you said this might be a bit of a speed bump, but what we also have to look at is two headwinds that are going to continue to propel our market forward. The first one you cited was immigration. Talk to me about the role immigration is going to play in terms of make, keeping this demand for housing at a high pace, if not a record pace. In 2021, Canada welcomed over 400,000 new permanent residents, and that was just above the target that the government set. And now, you know, between 2021 and 2024, we're expecting to welcome 1.3 million new permanent residents. So that's a lot of new households, and it will actually lead to the creation of 550,000 new households by 2024. These families are going to need somewhere to live. So that's that population growth is going to make sure that demand stays elevated at least a little bit. And the other thing you cited, which I, I was fascinated about, was this concept of shrinking households. See, I see the word shrink and I think less demand. But in fact, your argument says that there's actually going to be more people in the housing market. So explain that to us. It's actually a significant source of housing demand. So, you know, since 2016, one in 10 new households that were created can be accounted for by shrinking household size. So that means that you know, over time, we have seen people living in smaller numbers. A lot of this has been happening for decades. We're seeing younger people are living in couples later. We're seeing fewer people in that 25 to 34-year-old age bracket living in couples. We're seeing women having children later in life, which means that they're having fewer children. And at the same time, baby boomers are aging and living longer than previous generations. And just considering how many Canadians we have in that baby boomer cohort, um, we're going to see more seniors living alone over the next decade as well. The number of one-person households has accounted for 44% of household formation over the last decade. And what is the work that you do as an economist? How does that impact the governments when they're looking at how do we find a way to make housing more affordable? How do we build more homes, make sure we're building the right kind of homes for these shrinking households? All levels of immigrants coming to this country from people that are coming in with high paying jobs to looking for a job. What does the role of an economist play in helping to shape these policies? Because we really do need to act quite quickly. I know there's a lot of discussion now around whether or not we will continue to see the level of housing construction continue uh, throughout 
uh, this next housing market downturn, essentially, which is not not so much a crash, more so a correction. But I think what's important to point out is all of these demographic forces that are that are playing out here. We're seeing record numbers of immigrants. We're seeing household sizes contract, fewer people in each household. You know, we need to make sure that we have enough housing units uh, for all of these people. Uh, and if the government's going to continue to set these ambitious immigration targets that we need because we have an aging labor force, we're going to have to make sure that we're essentially putting the right policies in place uh, to stimulate investment in residential real estate and that we're developing the right kinds of homes. And these kinds of homes may look different. You know, if we see more people living alone, um, we might need fewer large detached homes we might need to build more condos for example do you think our expectations i mean the canadian dream was always defined by owning that detached house and, and you know two cars in the driveway do you think that part of what we must come to terms with as a society is that affordable housing might also mean a smaller footprint yeah it's definitely a conversation that's worth having i think as as we evolve and as we have smaller family sizes fewer children more people are living alone uh, it definitely warrants a discussion on uh, surrounding, you know, the types of housing that we're going to have moving forward and the types of housing that's needed. And, you know, the typical, um, you know, suburban home with with two cars in the driveway and, and a large, a large home in a subdivision that that may shift moving forward. Um, so it's, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's something that's worth discussing. Carrie Freestone, you were wonderful again on Chatter That Matters. And uh, I look forward to uh when those next papers come out, bringing you back on. Thanks for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thanks. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.